This is episode 529 of the Leaving Laodicea broadcast, and my name is Steve McCraney. In the book of Acts, the Lord reveals to us the plan for world evangelism that He has set out according to the Holy Spirit. And it's not mass media, nor the distribution of tracts, or great evangelistic meetings or revival, or any other humanly contrived system. No, it appears his method of evangelism for the early church is the presentation of the gospel accompanied by signs and wonders that only come from the Spirit. That's right. Or, as Peter Wagner coined the phrase, power evangelism. But many in the church reject this because of our fear of the Holy Spirit or the fact that we don't want to be one of those people who do and believe loopy, non-sophisticated stuff. And we go to great lengths theologically to try to come up with the reason God no longer works in our lives today the way he did in the book of Acts. We call it cessationism, and it decrees we don't need him to move that way anymore because we had the completed Bible. Really? I mean, think that through for a moment. And as you do, join us today as we look at the Acts and their mode of evangelism, which is word and power, as we learn how to leave Laodicea behind. Um, I'm going to go ahead and go through these passages one time in the beginning, uh, highlighting just a few points here because it's a rather strange event. You know, if you take the totality of the book of Acts, we're in the middle part of Acts chapter 5, started out great, we had persecution. Persecution turned out great, church bonded together, then we had the Ananias and Sapphira, which is internal persecution. Then we have this high point that we're talking about the church continuing the power of Christ. Then we're going to have more persecution. We're going to have external persecution, and then we're going to have more internal persecution when you know the, the church gets angry, one faction gets angry because their widows aren't being fed as much as the other one. And it seems like it's exter- internal, external, uh, internal, external persecution, and yet the church thrives. The church is on fire as it's under fire. How do they do that? Uh, what's happening here, and what can we learn? So this is Acts chapter 5, beginning in verse 12. It says, and through the hands of the apostles, you know, we defined, I guess we Tuesday night we talked about what apostles meant. It means more than just the 12. It actually means sent ones, and there's several people in Scripture that are called apostles that weren't part of the 12. But the apostles in the church, the sent ones here, it says through the hands of the apostles, many Many signs and wonders were done among the people. Doesn't tell us the totality of what those were, but it does give us an idea of some of those. And they're pretty much physical healings and being loosed from demonic oppression. Physical healings and freedom from uh, demonic stuff. It may also be mental healings. It may also be salvation takes place. It may also be restored relationships, but, but... Primarily at this particular point in time, the signs and wonders are something very physical, very tangible, so everyone can see. Through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among on the people. The key ingredient of the church is they're still together. They're still focusing in one accord, one heart, one mind, one soul, as it talks about at the end of Acts chapter 4. And they're meeting together in this portico, this porch that's on the side of the temple at that time. So they're not cowering down in their homes. They're not afraid. They're taking the gospel message 
to where the people are. And in doing so, they're inviting more persecution. None, none of the rest dared join them. You know, this is... um, can refer to the lost people. It can refer to the people that are watching them. They realize that there's you know, incredible power going on there. There's like a kinetic energy around those people. So they're not joining them yet, even though they were somewhat afraid because they saw the power of God moving there in ways that we don't understand. And they also realized from a political standpoint, these were marked men and they didn't want to associate with them. Nevertheless, the people lost and saved, primarily unbelievers here, esteemed them highly because of their character, because of their giving, because of their commitment to a cause. And then it continues. And believers now, we've gone from non-believers to believers, they were increasingly added to the Lord. People were getting saved day in and day out. They wanted to see what was part of this. It was what was happening, how this God was moving. This wasn't stale religion. It wasn't what they were accustomed to when they would come worship on the Sabbath. Something was pulsating here. Something was moving. This guy got healed over here, and these people stood up boldly and proclaimed the fact that they're going to continue with their message no matter what the Sanhedrin or the Supreme Court or whatever is said to them. There are other people getting saved. They're joining their ranks. They're going back home and telling their friends and family, look, I'm healed physically, and I'm healed spiritually. Come see this man that told me everything I ever did like this Samaritan woman. Then he goes on to say, it's not just added. These are multitudes of people are being added multitudes of people, both men and women. So much so, and this is where it gets strange, that they brought the sick out onto the streets. They would come and they would say, hey, this this is really happening here. This is amazing what's going on. So they would bring the sick out on the streets and laid them on beds and couches, which gives me the impression that they just laid them out there waiting for the parade to come by waiting for something to happen. It wasn't like, quick, run right now, there they are. It's like, I know they're going to pass this way. And if you can just get close to them, if you can just touch the hem of Christ's garment, you will be healed. And so the God was moving in such a powerful way that the shadow of Peter, just the shadow of Peter walking by, passing by might fall on some of them, and they believed they would get healed, and many of them did. What would it be like if you had the power of God so strong on you that when you walked into a store or you walked into work where you're surrounded by lost people, they immediately felt his presence, not yours, but his presence. They corrected their language when they were standing next to you. They made excuses for some of the stuff they've done. And, you know, you, they could, they could experience something about you. It continues. Also, in addition to this, there was multitudes gathering from the surrounding cities to come to Jerusalem. Word spread. Now they're coming from Bethany, and who knows how far these surrounding cities are, all the way to Caesarea Philippi, maybe up to Nazareth, um, into Galilee. Who knows? All these surrounding cities from the north and the south and the east and the west are gathering because the church is in Jerusalem. That's where God's moving. So they're bringing everybody into Jerusalem. They're bringing their sick people and those who are tormented by unclean spirits a physical healing, and a spiritual healing, and they were, here it says, all healed. Tens, dozens, hundreds, 
thousands healed. Well, we've never experienced anything like that. Not in America. Every time a little pocket revival kind of breaks out, everybody rushes to the revival, and they find out what's happening in the revival is pretty much a bunch of weird kind of signs that can be counterfeited or duplicated, and pretty much it does over time, and you realize that it's there's more self-promotion of the pastor or the church or whatever's going on, and those things kind of die out. In other countries, we're going to talk about today, like China, during the 30 years that ended in the late 1980s, uh, and I'll talk about this in just a minute, over 9,000 people a day were getting saved in communist China. And they believe now, I mean, this is a bad country here, even now, uh, the number could be as high as twenty to 30,000 a day. How is that possible? Why did that happen in America? In China, they don't have Christian TV. In China, it's a repressed society with a, you know, your social credit score, the same things you can do and things you can't do. The government is highly oppressive. They arrest some people and throw them in jail. They decide to stamp out this. Churches aren't allowed the freedom that we have now. And yet, People seldom ever get saved in churches today. And if it happens, it's like an anomaly. But in China right now and in other countries, it's just blowing up like crazy. Kind of like it was here in the book of Acts. How is that even happening? And what in the world is happening here in the book of Acts? Now listen very carefully. Um, This is a paradigm shift that has happened to me paradigm shift has happened to a lot of people. It's a paradigm shift I'm hoping will happen to you. I was raised in a Southern Baptist church. Um, and, you know, it's typical, traditional Southern Baptist church, white pews, red carpet, get the picture? You know, the big communion table up front, and we used to call it the remembrance table. Why? Because it says remembrance on me. And pastor would preach and never expected God to do anything. God never did anything. Occasionally, somebody would walk the aisle and get saved. And occasionally, you know, something good would happen. And, you know, there was this, it was a typical Baptist church. The typical Baptist church, we stood on one side, Charismatics and Pentecostals stood on another. They were loopy. They were crazy. They believed things we didn't believe. And when I would go to their worship services, it was like all emotion and all over the place. We, of course, a mighty fortress is our God. You know, we would stand and sing our songs. And they, of course, would dance and do all that kind of stuff. Their music was better than ours. But nevertheless, it was, uh, you know, that was just what it was. It was us and them. Us and them. We claim that spiritual gifts, primarily the sign gifts, ceased at the end of the first century, and we came up with a concoction from the love chapter in 1 Corinthians to try to prove that, which really didn't logically make any sense, but that's what we accepted, because it has never happened, and if it ever did happen, we would all freak out, because we don't want to be like these people. These people weren't doctrinally sound. We are doctrinally sound. These people are more flighty and emotional and stuff of that nature. And, you know, we have divorces and we have child abuse and we have drunkenness in our church. They have the same thing in their church, but they claim they have something we don't have. And so those of us who wanted to go over and taste and find out if they had something we don't have, when you peeled it back, you realized they didn't have anything that we don't have. They just acted like they did. So we went back over here to where it was safe and here we are today. Sound familiar? So what does that mean? Does that mean because we don't accept the uh, way 
this particular theology is portrayed in a charismatic church that it's wrong. Because if it's so, then they can come over and look at us, the frozen chosen, you know, who believe in divine election and stuff of that nature, and go, good night. If God chose you from the foundation of the world, don't you think you'd be more excited about it? Yeah, we, we are. Um, um, I, I'm not sure I've ever been in a non-charismatic church, like the lyrics to the song that Levi sang today, where we would shout out his praise with all our lungs. Know what I mean? That would be kind of strange. As a matter of fact, if that happened here, and all of a sudden we're, you know, singing and and Mo, you know, power of the Holy Spirit comes upon Mo, and Mo raises his hands, and Mo starts just shouting out God's praises, singing the song. Just picking on you if you don't mind. I'll pick on Dina. Or Dina, singing the song, <laughs> singing the song as loud as she possibly can. We would go. You okay? You know what I mean? Because we just don't expect that. And that's all right. That's our style of worship versus their style of worship. And we, we have a tendency of somehow thinking that what we feel comfortable with is doctrinally true. But maybe, maybe, maybe God is bigger than the box we put him in. Maybe God is bigger than, you know, what... We don't like what they do, but maybe he's bigger than what we do, what they do, what anybody does. Maybe he wants to show us some things that will absolutely blow us away. Acts shows us what church is supposed to be like. It's a prototype. It, it is a terrible teaching tool to be able to say, here's what we're going to do. We're going to create a church, and then we're going to, Holy Spirit's going to inhabit that church. We're going to show you what church is like. I'm going to present you with a manual. Here's a manual, a God-inspired manual showing what the early church was like, how they prayed, what they did, how they shared the gospel, how God moved in their midst, what the response was in a hostile land with people who aren't interested in hearing this gospel message. But you can't use that manual. You can't do it the way they did because all of that stuff doesn't apply to you. Well, why would you show me a prototype of something very successful and then tell me I have to function with something less successful and then have the audacity to claim this is the abundant life in Christ? Logically, it makes no sense. I won't... um, I won't go into great details. I've shared this with you before. But if you go to the classic cessationist passage, which basically says that because we in the West don't experience moving of the Spirit like we're seeing in the book of Acts, therefore God doesn't do that anymore because there's no need for it because we have the completed canon. We have this word here. So the fivefold ministries apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, and evangelists that God gave to the church. Oh, after A.D. 100, we don't need these two anymore since we have God's word. So we're functioning on 60% of what the church did back then. No early Christian would ever read God's word and assume that's the case. You have to be taught that. 
Nobody would ever assume at the end of the love chapter, you know, where it talks about, you know, when I was a child, I thought I was a child, and now I'm a man, I put away childish things, and you know, now I see dimly, but when the perfect comes, then I will see as, it, as he is. When you read that passage, the perfect is Christ. It's clearly Christ. No, it's not Christ. Okay, then what is it? It's the Bible that hasn't been written yet when Paul wrote that letter to Corinth, but it's someday it will be. You'll be dead, and your kids will be dead. It'll be about 100 years from now, or about 70 years from now, and then, then the Bible will be complete, and then the perfect won't be necessary anymore, and all these things that happen in the book of Acts won't happen. Nobody on their, in their right mind would ever, ever read that passage and come to that conclusion unless somebody said, no, you're wrong. It doesn't really mean what it says. Let me tell you what it means, and then come up with some really cool-sounding way to excuse things that are our heritage in Christ. And it takes a paradigm shift in your brain to actually move beyond what feels uncomfortable to accept and believe what God actually says. Early church. Acts chapter 2, the church is born. They devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine and teaching and breaking bread and prayer. God was doing incredible things in their midst. There were signs and wonders being performed. God, by the way, every time signs and wonders are being performed, what happens is the fact that people get saved. The purpose of a sign and a wonder or a miracle was to point people to Christ and ultimately to salvation. Uh, signs and wonders are performed. Act chapter 2, Lord's adding daily to the numbers being saved. More signs and wonders take place in Acts chapter 5. God is multiplying the people that are there. In Acts chapter 4, the early church speaks the word of God with more boldness. The house is shaken. They're going out just fired up for the Lord Jesus Christ, taking it right to the enemy, going to the, the temple. Solomon's portico in a group and doing these things and people are getting saved like crazy. There's a purpose for all of this. Acts chapter 4, we have this persecution that takes place um, where Peter stands up and says, you know, you guys can uh, say what you want, but we're not going to cease from preaching and teaching the word of God. They come back to the church. They report it to the church. Since everybody has given everything to some corporate, you know, corporately giving everything to the church. They don't worry about individual lawsuits or losing their house and stuff of that nature. They don't run to the hills. They pray. The house was shaken. They have two prayer requests. The first one is, let us speak the word of God with more boldness, answered immediately. The second one, and let us stretch, stretch forth your hand and heal and bring signs and wonders that will mystify the people and let them realize God is with us and God is with them. That doesn't happen until Acts chapter verse 12, and as I shared with you last week, what was keeping that second prayer request from being answered was internal pride and hypocrisy in the church that he weeded out in a very dramatic way in, uh, in Acts chapter 5 with the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Remember? Watch this. It's like, it's like the roadblock is gone and we're back to Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, they're all filled with the Holy Spirit. It says, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Acts chapter 4, after the persecution takes place, same filled with the Holy Spirit. And when they had prayed, the place that they were assembled together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. First prayer request answered and they spoke the word of God with boldness. 
what happened in Acts chapter 2, continuing in Acts chapter 4 and 5. God sent a tangible sign from heaven. So they realized something was happening. Acts chapter 2, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven. What kind of sound was that? Like a rushing mighty wind, like a 747 parked in the parking lot. Then they were all filled, and it all filled the house where they were sitting. Everybody heard it. It was like this rushing wind. They probably felt the wall shaking. They probably realized, wow, something's happening here. It was a tangible sign that God was here. Acts chapter 4, after the persecution. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. Walls are shaking. Furniture is moving. They themselves are shaking. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God with boldness. It continues. The early church sold their possessions and gave to everyone who had need. In other words, everybody in the church was all in, 100%, equal sacrifice. Now all who believed were together, Acts chapter 2. They had all things in common and sold their possessions in good, goods, which is the ultimate sign of commitment to someone else besides yourself. They divided them among all, anyone who had need. It continues in Acts chapter 4, after the great persecution. Now the multitude of those believed were of one heart and one soul, all for one, one for all. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. It wasn't like persecution shattered the church. The boldness that they had in Acts chapter 2, same boldness they had in Acts chapter 4, moving into Acts chapter 5. Many signs and wonders were done through the apostles. And we find out as we go through the book of Acts that the signs and wonders move from just the apostles to others who are not part of the 12, who are not designated as how we would just the apostles being the 12 that followed the Lord. It says, and fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 5, and through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. And the purpose of all of this, people get saved. People get miraculously saved. They're overwhelmed with the fact that the kingdom of God is upon them, and the kingdom of God is not just words, Paul says, but the kingdom of God is power. You shall receive power. What kind of power? Signs, wonderful uh, wonders, miracles, bold preaching, power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Well, I believe that kind of. I believe that doctrinally, but not experientially. Because I've never seen it before, and so therefore it can't really be true. Here we have this. Continuing daily with one accord in the temple, Acts chapter 2, the breaking bread from house to house. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church family every single day those who were being saved. And we find the same thing after the persecution. And believers were increasingly added to the church, multitudes of both men and women. Now listen very carefully. There's something happening here. There's something happening that a phrase has been coined for it. Um, um, It's controversial, but what has been happening here is something known as power evangelism. It's evangelism coupled with signs and wonders and miracles. Something that is anathema to most of the church in the West. 
But in the Bible and in other places, we see it all the time. Watch the rest of this sentence. And believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that what? What happened? The power part, the reason why these multitudes of people were being added to the Lord, because they're seeing something they've never experienced before, so that they brought the sick out into the street and laid them on beds and couches so that just the shadow of Peter might fall upon them. Well, that sounds like some, some charlatan faith healer kind of stupid stuff. Yeah, it does. But nevertheless, the Bible says that's exactly what happened. So much so that it began to spread. I live in Jerusalem. Um, my wife is paralyzed. I bring her out. Peter just walks by or some of the disciples pray with her or whatever happens. Now my wife is healed by this Jesus I know nothing about. I'm a Jew. I don't know anything about this Jesus, but you better believe I want to know about him. So I go and I talk about this. I learn about this God, this king of kings and lord of lords, who's done something no Jewish rabbi has ever done, never happened in the, the temple. Matter of fact, they even didn't say those things happen anymore, but a healing has taken place in my family, and so we give our lives to Christ. We're part of this community. I get on the phone. I send emails out. I Facebook everybody I know to tell them what happened to my wife. Originally, they come just for the physical healing, but nevertheless, they recognize the power of God there, power evangelism, and they're just blown away, and they come to Christ, and it gets insane. It just grows and multiplies to the point that there's these multitudes gathering from surrounding cities that are bringing sick people, and every one of them were healed. Not because there's a healing ministry taking place, but because by getting them healed, or Jesus feeding the 5,000, he turns around after meeting their physical needs, and he shares with them the, the incomprehensible joy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Power evangelism, again, just using a phrase that's already been coined, is incredibly common everywhere except here and in Europe. Europe, because it's kind of a post-Christian state, in here, we don't believe in this stuff. We're part of the Enlightenment. We're pragmatic. We're kind of skeptical. We have a medical need because we have insurance and we have Obamacare. We have health facilities everywhere. It seems like every new building that's being built in Gaston County is a hospital or a school. Have you ever noticed that? You know, there's constantly moving in that direction and, you know, they... Um, uh, give you drugs that don't make you well just to keep you on the drugs and we're just caught in the system so we just buy into the system and very seldom do we ever really approach God for a healing you know after everything they've done medically can be done then there's nothing else left for us to do to pray they did not have that privilege back then when I went to Haiti and I saw the squalor the people lived and I saw how God moved in their midst I was ashamed I was ashamed at my lack of faith, and I know I've shared stories with you before about that, and, and I realized that the reason why God moved in their midst is they had nothing but him. We have everything and maybe him in the West and in Europe, but in some of these foreign countries, some of these places where God's moving in mighty ways, that they don't have anything but Jesus, God moves in that way. So there's a paradigm shift that we have to quit thinking like Westerners. If I see it, I believe it. If I, can, if I can 
conceive it in my mind, maybe I'll accept it into the rest of my belief system. I think, therefore I am, versus I trust because God, who I don't understand, is all in all. You know, we have a choice here in this paradigm shift, and it will take a while. At least it did for me. That you'll either think like a Westerner, capitalistic Westerner who has it all in their mind that we put Jesus in a box or season our life with him rather than commit everything to him, or we can think like children of the most high God. Think that through. Children, sons and daughters of the most high God who does not require us to go to where he is, but is chosen to make us tabernacles of him. He lives in you. The most high God in the person of the Holy Spirit lives in you and tells you to be filled with him and to be empowered by him and to have gifts that only he can give for the glory of God the Father. From a Westerner, that makes no sense at all. And so we kind of think, well, yeah, I know the Holy Spirit's in me doctrinally and theologically, and I know I'm seated with Christ in the heavenlies, kind of, but I don't want to experience that in my life because it has to filter through my mind and not through my faith. We can think like churchgoers. We come to church and never expect God to do anything, and he doesn't. You know, we may feel good and, you know, worship a little bit and learn something theologically amazing about God's word, but it doesn't really impact our life because when we walk out of here, the church spiritual stuff stays behind. We still face the same problems on Monday, the same besetting sins that we can't get rid of, or we can think like what you have in your laps right now. This is really God's word. God's word, it's like he sat down and dictated a letter to me and to you. It's God's promises. It's his word. It gives us his wisdom. It tells us everything we need to know about anything. And all it tells us to do is believe it. And if I believe this, even though my upbringing, my education, the culture I live in, my sincerely held convictions are different than that, if I'm able to move beyond what I believe and accept what he says is true, a radical transformation takes place in us, and we become more than just Westerners, churchgoers. We become some people who have our faith, not just in our experiences. Well, when I was 22 years old, my grandmother was really sick, and I prayed that God would heal her, and God didn't heal her, and I made all these deals with God, and I told God that I would just do this, that, and the other, and if he loved me, he would heal my grandma, because you know how sad it would be if she died, but she did die, and I haven't prayed to him about that since, because I'm mad at him. I resent him. I, I had a prayer request, and I expected him to grant it, because you know my wisdom is higher than his wisdom, and I know what I want, and what I want must be what he wants, because otherwise... I don't want a God that's going to direct me. I was going to do what's best for me. I want a God that's going to do what I think is best for me. And so therefore, I don't pray anymore. I don't believe in that stuff anymore because I tried it and it failed. He did not meet my expectations. That's the height of arrogance and narcissism, is it not? 
for us to, to put God on parade and say, dance for us, entertain us. And if you do, I'll believe. And if you don't, you're out of here, bub. I'll make it my own way. And most Christians, including me, we season our life with God. We draw on him when we can't handle it ourselves because men do things themselves, not be totally dependent on someone else. And so then we sometimes he blesses us, sometimes he answers, sometimes he doesn't. But we've learned over the years, I'll make it my own way. And when I really get in a jam, I got a genie in a bottle or a get out of hell free card, but I am the pilot and God is my co-pilot. And here we are. And we have to build a theology up that says all the things in the book of Acts that point to something different can't be true because if for them, God was the pilot and we still want to be in control. Signs and wonders and miracles are confusing. Um, they, you know, why does God do them? And like when he, when he raised Lazarus from the dead, you know, that was a, a temporary healing because Lazarus died again. Lazarus didn't live forever. And so the fact is, if God heals you of, of a heart murmur, you're going to die of something else. You're either going to develop cancer or you're going to die in your sleep or get hit by a bus. I mean, so if God's healing somebody, does he heal them permanently? Well, yeah, spiritually. But do you want to live 175 years in the body you have right now? Amen, brother. Uh, we don't. But the fact is that we're so earthbound that the thought of going to heaven is, no, no, I, I don't want to go to heaven and be with you, Jesus, in a glorified body surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses praising your name forever. Instead, I want to hold on to what little I have down here because this is where my affection is. And I will go to immense extremes to get one more month six more years, just a little bit more time here when heaven is supposed to be incredible. Jesus is preparing a place for us in heaven to come back and receive us unto himself so that where he is, we will be also. And he wants us to see his glory in heaven. Well, all we're going to do with heaven is sit around with his white robe and play a little harp, and I hate the harp, and, you know, fly with these little wimpy wings and, and sing songs to him. I don't even like to sing songs here. What a, what a perverted view of heaven. Know what I mean? But we do that. I know I've made fun of this before, but the first church I pastored was a country church in LaGrange, Georgia, and it was all this southern gospel stuff. And the, Minister of Music was a Southern Gospel guy, and so he would bring in Southern Gospel bands, and they would sing, and every song they sang had to do with heaven. Oh, they get teary-eyed, but they would sing it. We go to heaven. It's going to be so great seeing the Lord, being with Grandma and all the great saints of old, and, you know, singing the songs, and they'd be looking at each other, just nodding their head, tears coming down, until the doctor says, guess what? You get to go to heaven before the end of the year, and then it's like, oh, and then life's over. They're just anguishing over that. Wait a second. Wait a second. So it's only for singing? It's not for living? There's a difference. It's a paradigm shift to understand why these signs and wonders happen, why God does what he does. And the reason is, well, I'll share the reason with you. The reason is because he wants to point people to Christ. Always point people to Christ. Every physical healing will eventually hail, fail but every spiritual healing lasts forever. Amen? Signs and wonders.
this power evangelism where the gospel was proclaimed along with manifestations of the power of God was very common. Acts chapter 5, through the hands of the apostles, many signs were done among the people. We go back to Acts chapter 3 that brought on the first persecution. Peter's heading up. Peter and John are heading up to the temple. They see a man who'd been there over 40 years old. The man is. He's been there crippled a long time. All the religious people realize that's just his lot. Then they developed a theology that the reason why he's like that is because of some sin he committed. And so because that's why God's not healing him. And they come by and they say, look, silver and gold I don't have, but what I do have I give to you. Well, Peter, what did you have? Well, I had the Holy Spirit living in me. Steve, what do you have? Uh, this, this, the same thing. All right. Well, I know what I have in Christ, and so what I don't have uh, is money. But oh, but you do have money. I don't have money, but what I do have is the same thing that you have. But I live according to what I have. So, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Oh, well, I would never say that. Why? Well, because. What if they don't? It makes me look bad. Oh, it makes Christ look bad. It doesn't make Christ look bad. Christ heals who he wants to heal. True? He is sovereign. (laughs) My my God's in his heavens, and he does what he pleases. Heals, raises up people, brings them down. God is sovereign. But Peter, Peter understood this, and all of a sudden this evangelism coupled by a healing took place. He preached this incredible message. 5,000 men now joined the church, where in Acts chapter 2, it was just 3,000 total. Persecution takes place. They're so bold that they don't even care. We see this all through Scripture, especially in the book of Acts. And it's not just limited to the apostles or the 12. A couple chapters later, you have a man named Stephen. Stephen's introduced as one of these deacons who's full of faith that took over the job of making sure the needs were met between the Hellenistic Jews and the uh, Hebraic Jews in the early church. And then, of course, he preaches this message and ends up getting stoned. And again, it introduces another character, which is, uh, which is Saul. But the fact is, it says Stephen. He's not one of the 12. He's not even an apostle. Full of faith and power did great wonders and signs among the people. Oh, so what they teach you in seminary, that all this stuff is limited just to the early church and limited just to the apostles, oh, plus Stephen. Okay, got any others? Yeah, there's a man named Philip the Evangelist. There are four Philips in Scripture. One of them is Philip a disciple. One is called Philip the Evangelist, who we're going to talk about here, who went into Samaria. They're not the same people. So he goes into Samaria, and he starts preaching the gospel. Look what happens. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitude, with one accord, heeded the things Philip spoke. Why? Because they believed his words? No, because the evangelism was coupled with power. With power. And hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. Well, what miracles were those? Where they're like, you know, I have a little polyp, and uh, since you've, you've preached, I think my polyp's gone. No, these were miracles that lost people could see, that they could understand the power of God was in their midst. Unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. There's no denying what's happening here. And obviously, there was great joy in that city. Then we have the story of Simon, 
who wanted to follow and wanted to learn how to do this. And it says that when they believed Philip as he preached, what did you preach, Philip? I preached about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is upon you. The kingdom of God, when things like this happen, is what I'm preaching. And also I'm preaching about the authority and the name of Jesus Christ, which is exactly what we should be preaching when it comes to sharing our faith and evangelism. Both men and women were baptized, and Simon himself also believed. When he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed. What were you amazed at? At the miracles and signs which were done in a hostile environment to Samaritans who the Jews wanted nothing to do with, and God was doing incredible things. Gospel, power. Uh, You can keep going. And then Acts chapter 9, here's a man that's healed, Dorcas, raised from the dead. There's miracles in Iconium and Lystra. There's a man with Paul and Barnabas who, who had the faith to believe. Paul recognized that there was the power there to believe, and so therefore he was, he was healed. It happens all through the book of Acts. It also happens in other countries, but just not here. Wonder why. Two. Well, we can learn sick people were brought to Jerusalem for no other reason than to be healed. They came for a healing. They came to Jesus to hear what he had to say, and he fed them. And they realized, and I don't want people following me just for the food. And so he kind of pulled away and wanted to teach him the gospel because I didn't come to be someone that is a, you know, a, a cosmic food stamps. Or I don't want to come and be just a, a holy healing man. I'm the son of God, but I'm using these power tools, these miracles, to be able to open up people's hearts to the gospel. Again, Acts chapter 5, multitudes gathered from surrounding cities, bringing sick people, and they were all healed. Same thing happened in uh, Luke 16. We looked at this on Tuesday where Jesus goes up into a mountain and he prays all night and he calls his 12 disciples to himself and he appoints them as apostles. And when he came down, he stood on a level ground and great multitudes of people from all Jerusalem and Judea and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. I mean, that's even out of the Holy Land. That's way up towards Caesarea Philippi on the seacoast. So if you're looking at a map, and I shared this on Tuesday, you're up by the Sea of Galilee, and Galilee, you have Samaria, then Judea, and above here on the Mediterranean coast is Tyre and Sidon. So it's people all the way from down here in Jerusalem, all the way up here, are all coming to be healed of their diseases. Can you imagine Imagine what it, would hap- what it would happen if all of a sudden God anointed someone like Peter to have this kind of ministry today. Oh, yeah, the multitude of people would follow him, and he'd have his own website and his healing ministry. They, the cameras would follow him, and they would give him credit for everything. And I mean, it would be, we'd be just looking for some God to worship. Back then, they even struggled with that back then. But back then, people came to be healed. And, and how were they healed by Jesus? Those that were tormented by unclean spirits, they were healed. The whole multitude sought to touch him, note this, because power went out from Christ. And the people recognized power went out from Christ, and so therefore they were healed. The woman with the issue of blood comes up to Jesus, and a crowd thronging around just wanted to touch him and, and touches the hem of his garment. He stops, who touched me? Well, what, are you, what are you talking about? Who touched you? Everybody's touching you. How can No, no. I felt power come out of me. So somebody of these hundreds of people who were just trying to touch me, somebody touched me in faith. And the power went out 
and somebody got healed, who was it? I, I did. Your faith has made you well. Go. Isn't that amazing? And it's happening to Christ, and we find it happening in the early church. Now, probably not going to share all of this with you today, but I want you to know that stuff like this happens all over the world, except in the West and except in America, because we don't believe it, we don't want it, we don't accept it, we don't expect it. Our paradigm is like that, God, you take care of the spiritual things, we'll take care of everything else, and if we ask you to help us, you may or may not. And so therefore, we're not going to, I don't want to go through the disappointment, we're just going to handle it our way. Not like it was elsewhere. I mean, the fact is, when you read accounts of miracles taking place and people raised from the dead from, you know, reported by American missionaries and all this kind of stuff, our first response, well, did the doctor actually confirm them as dead? I need to see the birth certificate first. because I, I just don't believe that stuff's going to happen. Why? Because I've been deceived too much over here with the Benny Hinn kind of guys. Well, it's not about the charlatans. It's about what the scripture teaches. Either God moves or he doesn't. I mean, if he's either moving out there like he is in the scripture, which he says he will, and if he's not moving here, then it's not that they're lying. It's that maybe, maybe we don't believe or care or trust or expect stuff like that to happen. I was reading an account about this commune in China. It's back in 1980. This commune in China, it was called uh, Yeshua Mountain. There were 30,000 Christians surrounded by a very hostile government had pulled together for a commune, 30,000 believers. They'd sold their possession. They'd all come together, had this agricultural kind of way, and this mountain was uh, uh, supposedly the mountain in which they lived on. And the government sent down an administrator who was very anti-Christian, very heavy-handed, and he uh, persecuted them greatly, greatly, until he came down with nasal cancer. Uh, It was inoperable. It was terminal. It was incredibly painful and disfiguring. And in the pits of his despair, he said, you know what? I don't believe in this Jesus. I don't believe anything those people have. But I've heard rumors about people getting healed in this condition. I might as well just go to this town, go to this Yeshua mountain, and talk to them and see what's happened. So he goes to the leaders. The leaders gathered around him. They prayed for him. And he was instantly healed, instantly healed. And he immediately stopped the persecution of this group of uh, believers at that time. And God broke out in a incredible way. The only thing that brought that man to Christ in that situation was not the gospel message. It was the power that authenticated that gospel message. And we find that going through, um, we find that going through the book of Acts continually. And we find it going on in China and Indonesia and Vietnam right now in unbelievable numbers. Again, in the late 80s, in the, in the 30 years leading up into the late 80s, the number of believers in China grew from 1.5 million to 100 million. That's without LifeWay. That's without the internet. That's without churches on every street corner. That's, that's facing persecution, imprisonment, and death. I mean, do the math. That's 9,000 people a day in communist China. How in the world did that happen? Was it just, you know, you come into church and we're going we're gonna to look at the Beatitudes today. Uh, Matthew, we're just going to deal with one, Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, and we just share some doctrinal message. If you talk to the pastors that took place, um, 
The, back then, they said it was because of power evangelism. People came because they were getting healed. They were getting freed from the demons that were there. And because God is big enough to take care of their physical need, then God is God. And we'll embrace him with our spiritual needs. And this is what Chinese pastors attribute to the church growth. It is estimated that by 2025, there'll be 160 million, and again, 247 million by 2030, which is 9,000 a day. I mean, it's amazing what's happening. And pastor testimonies say that this is the major reason for the increase. Will you find that preached from churches today? No. Will you find book published by Christian um, publications talking about this? No, because it makes us seem like sub-Christians. Because if God's moving out there like that, we don't want anybody in here to know about that because it looks bad on the church today. And so therefore, this stuff is, like almost everything else good in our culture, stifled, suppressed, spin. But it's out there. It's on the internet. It's on YouTube. It's amazing, the testimonies of these men. The purpose of power evangelism, the purpose of signs and wonders is to point people to Christ. Three, power to heal comes from God alone. He chooses how he's going to do it. He chooses whom he's going to do it. He chooses when he's going to do it. I mean, we don't know what God's will is, so we pray for healing. God will or he won't. And many times he does based on the faith. And in America today, I mean, pastors I've talked to, we've uh, some forums and stuff where Talk about stuff like this, especially in an anonymous way, so no one will send it to your board of elders. You know, you find that many pastors go, yeah, we pray for healing, but we don't really think it's going to happen. Why not? Because it's never happened. Because it's just, uh, we just go through the motions, because it's never happened, we don't really think it's going to happen. We act like we do, but we don't. A lot of Christians are exactly the same way. They don't really think it's going to happen. God heals when he wants to. God heals how he wants to. And he does something as crazy as had Peter's shadow pass by. Can he do that? Yes. Is that a mode and method of healing we should try today? It doesn't say this is the cookbook recipe here. It's just what he did back then. He heals any way he wants to, but he heals. He's still the same God yesterday and today and forever. Again, and he, he um, read these verses, he heals uh, unclean spirits, and he heals physically. Acts chapter 14, verse 8, Paul and Barnabas are preaching, and they look out in the congregation, and they see a man who had the faith to be healed. Wow, so there's big people listening to them. I'm sure there were other lame people there, because they'd heard what Paul and Barnabas had done, and they looked over here, and Nothing over here. Maybe this guy, this guy's different. I see in him the faith to be healed. So they spoke just to that guy. Stand up. On your feet. And he did. And he was healed. So there's elements of faith involved in this. We don't know what God's going to do. But the fact is, faith is involved. And what the first thing we have to do is understand that whether we believe what God's word says or we don't. All right, I'll bite. So what's the purpose of this? Signs and wonders and miracles. How can can't the church just function alone without those? Okay. Let me give you three purposes. Signs and wonders and miracles are indication of the presence of God's kingdom in your midst. Really? Absolutely. God's kingdom, Christ's kingdom comes with miraculous moving of power. 
The kingdom of God is, is at hand. The kingdom of God is here. And then Jesus' whole ministry was tied up in the things that he did. Amazing passage here. Kingdom of God is not in just words, which we have relegated it to. But the kingdom of God comes with Dudamas explosive power. The power God gave each one of us when the Holy Spirit lives within you. The kingdom of God is not a verbal kingdom. It's not like every other kingdom. The kingdom of God transcends everything. And our allegiance is to a king. Signs and wonders are an expression of God's compassion. Sometimes he heals simply because people are hurting, because he has a heart for people. And you and I maybe sometimes are able to be part of his divine compassion. Matthew 14, 14, which is pretty much like some of the passages quoted today. And Jesus went out and saw a great multitude, and he was moved with compassion for them, and he healed their sick. Why did you heal their sick? Well, in addition to pointing to the fact that I am Christ and hopefully leading this lost multitude to salvation in me, I also felt sorry for them. They're hurting. I mean, there's physical ailments and, and maladies and stuff like that just make life terrible. And I had compassion for these hurting people, so therefore I healed their sick. Signs and wonders point primarily to the power of Christ. And that power of Christ is what leads lost people to him. We have determined that it's just a mental thing. Well, I'm going to study apologetics because this person has a lot of questions. And if I can have all the biblical answers, I can logically convince him to accept Jesus Christ as his Savior. He will, he will then mentally and logically embrace this worldview. It doesn't work that way at all. There's regeneration. There's conversion that takes place. There's a life-altering experience that comes with salvation. It's more than just words. It's words accompanied by things only God can do. Only God can do. It's biblical. It happens elsewhere. And I believe God wants it to happen here. Why wouldn't he? Well, because I guess we're too sophisticated. Really? Really? No spiritual people I ever met were in Haiti. And they had nothing. They had no college education, no seminary education. Many of them didn't even have a Bible. And they embraced Christ with everything they had. And God did miracles in their life and gave them a joy and squalor, literal squalor, that I've never seen on anybody in my entire life, including myself. Power evangelism takes place. God's increasingly adding to their numbers. Let me close with this. Think about this paradigm shift. Jesus teaches his disciples, and then he says, guys, your internship is over. I'm not sending you out to do what I've been doing. What? Yes. I'm going to send out the 10, or send out the 12, Matthew chapter 10, and I want you to go to the lost sheep of Israel. I want you to get caught up in political stuff. And while you're there, I want you to do exactly what I'm doing. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the leper. You remember? Don't take any money. Don't take a two tunics. Don't worry about what you're going to eat or where you're going to stay. A workman is worthy of his hire. I want you to trust me. I want you to trust what I said in Matthew 6, that seek my kingdom first and my righteousness, and I will take care of all your needs. So I want you to go out like that, and I want you to do what I have done. I'm actually going to give you my power to be able to go do that as if I was with you, the same power you and I have now. And he sent them out. You remember the story? Luke 10, he sends out 70. 
So it's not just the 12, it's part of the entourage. And he sends them out in the same instructions to go out and do the same thing I'm doing. And he talks about the fact that Luke chapter 10, that you know, they heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers. And they come back rejoicing that even the demons were subject to us in your name. Which makes me think healings were nothing compared to what we saw spiritually. How they, they were subject to us because you are the Christ. Jesus said in John 14 that uh, the things that I do, you will do greater things. And you will do greater things because I go to the Father. And when I go to the Father, I will send you the Holy Spirit, the helper, the paraclete, someone just like me. So in other words, I won't have to be with you physically. You will always have me with you. And then you will do greater things than I do. Well, like greater things like what? Well, what did I do? You raised the dead, you walked on water, you fed 5,000 people with a, you know, a small little pack lunch, you, you did incredible things. Oh, yeah, I, I did, but, but that's not what I mean for you. What I'm talking about is you just lead people to me. No, that's not, that's not what it says. Scripture says that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So the same Jesus who did this and sent the 70 out and gave us the same spirit and modeled what that looks like in the book of Acts, is he the same yesterday? Well, yeah, I see it in Acts. Is he the same today? I'm not so sure. I don't know. Is, is that only partially true? Was he that way back then, but he's not going to be that way now? But he'll be that way in the future when we get to heaven. Or am I basically just calling him a liar because my experience and lack of faith and my paradigm shift that hasn't taken place won't let me believe it's even possible for God to do the things he can. Or is this true for everybody? Or is this only true for, oh, the 12, and then the apostles, and then the 70, whoever they were, and then Barnabas wasn't one, and Titus was called an apostle, and then Stephen did it, and then Philip did it, and then we come up with a whole list of exceptions. Or is it for everybody? Is it for you? Is it for me? Is, is it for the church? None of this become true in the church until each of us decide that um, we believe what the word says. Not looking at what other people who claim to believe that have done. We're not basing our faith on the success or failures of other people or the success and failures of our own prayer life. We're basing our belief on the integrity and the character and the truthfulness and faithfulness of God and his word. If he says it, I believe it, and that settles it. Remember that statement? Except when it comes to this. Except when it comes to stuff I feel uncomfortable with. I want you to remember the promise from John 1, 5 through 8. It's a conditional promise. And here it is. If anyone you lacks wisdom to accept this or not, to believe it or not, to trust him or not. Let him ask God, and God will give you that wisdom. God will give you anything you ask of him wisdom-wise, and he'll give it to you liberally and won't make fun of you or put you down because you didn't have it in the first place. God, I don't understand. God, it doesn't make sense to me. God, help me. Okay, I'm not going to chastise you for that. I'm going to give liberally to you. But here's the condition. But you must ask in faith and not doubt. Because when you doubt, you doubt my word. You doubt my character. You doubt my truthfulness. You think I'm playing favorites. You think I view somebody else more special than you. You view that I love all those other people more than I love you. 
As he who doubts is like a wave driven by and tossed by the sea. You know, I believe this today and that tomorrow and this the next day and that don't expect that man should receive anything from the Lord because he's unstable and double-minded and can't be trusted in all his ways. Wow. So the way for me to understand if this is true, if God's word is really true, if there's a life bigger than I can possibly imagine is to ask God without doubting, to trust God without doubting, to set my logic aside and what I think is true and just trust him. What I'm asking you to do is just that. Go home, open up your Bible, read the book of Acts, ask God to speak to you. Don't listen to my opinion or somebody else's opinion or this theologian or that theologian because everybody has different opinions. But just basically ask God to teach you, to show you. Is, it, uh, is there more to this Christian life than I'm experiencing? And if, it's, if there's not, that's really a disappointment, isn't it? Really a disappointment. I mean, he made some comments about having a peace that passes understanding. I've never experienced that because I kind of understand the peace that I have. But, but if that's true, then there has to be something beyond what I'm experiencing now because he's a great God, and I'm sure he hasn't given me to experience everything he has. Because then... But I can conceive who God is? Ask him to change your thinking. Ask him to do that. Uh, ask him to teach you to trust him, what he says, and not what you feel or imagine or think or want or anything like that, or what you've experienced in the past. Because if you remember this incredible passage in Ephesians chapter 3, and I'll close with this. Here's what he says. Now to him, remember the rest of the verse, who is able capable, that verse, uh, the word also means willing, to do exceedingly, big word, abundantly beyond anything you can conceive, anything you can think he can do, beyond what you can ask or even imagine in your mind. It takes more faith to ask what you have in your mind than it does just to think it, that, that he's able to do mind-blowing amounts greater than you can possibly even imagine, according to the power that works in us, in his church. And what power is that? It's the same power they had. It's the power of the Holy Spirit, God himself living in you. And because of that, the praise and the glory of the church to all generations in Christ Jesus. Read that doxology. That shows you what he can and can't do. I'm asking you, and it may take a while, to... Begin a paradigm shift in your mind that you will trust God for exactly what he says. Not what you feel comfortable, not what makes sense to you, but exactly what he says. And let him show you how great he is. Amen? Let me pray.